thanks for joining me again on chapter three of my podcast of Bible stories. I hope you enjoyed chapters one and two. Chapter two was quite a difficult thing to go through. Lots of memories from my past and if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, it probably would make sense to go back and have a listen. But chapter two ended with me pretty much having a nervous breakdown from the pressures and stresses from leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses and the pressures my dad, who found it very, very difficult to accept my decision, was putting on me. The last part of chapter two saw me pulling out a kitchen knife and chasing my dad down the street with it. So it was quite a powerful image and a climactic end to that chapter. It was decided that evening that I was obviously very mentally unwell. The doctor came to the house and it was decided that I should self-administer myself to the local psychiatric hospital for recovery and evaluation. After my final outburst with my dad, understandably, he was frightened for his and his family's safety. I don't know what I thought would happen from my actions. I guess they weren't premeditated. They were just raw emotions spilling out of me in a broken rage that I couldn't contain. But I knew I wanted everyone to see and hear how I felt. So, there I was, age 18, in a mental hospital. But at least I was free. My mum used to come and visit and some of my parents' friends from the congregation who were sympathetic to my situation came. But worst of all was my grandfather who drove up from London to see me. I remember the tears streamed down his face when he saw his first and oldest grandchild sitting in a hospital bed in a mental hospital. I can't remember our conversation. My granddad was a lovely man. I wished he was my dad. I used to go and visit them in London as soon as I was old enough to travel unaccompanied on the coach and when I'd learned to drive I would drive the 600 mile round trip by myself and stay a week with them. It was a happy time down there, away from all the JW stuff and my family. Both my grandmothers had converted to the Jehovah's Witnesses after being called on door-to-door ministry back in the 50s, not long after World War II, and both of their husbands uh, weren't converted. So my parents both had the similar situation of one parent in the Witnesses and one out. I I would hope that would have given them a bit more of an understanding of the different aspects of life, the JW life and the the normal life. Uh, However, they were quite well indoctrinated as children. So I guess I would be classed as a third generation Jehovah's Witness when I was still in. Um, Yeah, it's always been a big part of um, our lives growing up. It it was the, the normal My nan in London um, was not particularly active. She wasn't a very confident person and she didn't go on the ministry very often. Um, When I was down there, we used to go to the meetings, but it didn't seem such a chore as it was at home. And to be fair, I was always welcomed at the congregation meetings as my parents had been there when they were younger. So I was meeting people who had known my parents when they were my age, if that makes sense. When I was down in London, me and Grandad would go on day trips, um, have a few cheeky beers, visit the landmarks. He used to whistle a black cab, give the driver £10 and say, 
Show the lad the sights, governor. I used to love going to London. I felt free there. Yes, I was free here in hospital. I hadn't been sectioned. I was there under my own free will. And I could go down into the town whenever I liked. I had a little spending money and I would go to the bookshop and buy graphic novels. I loved Judge Dredd at the time. The artwork and the stories fueled my imagination. As a kid, I'd always made my own comics, and I loved the detailed inkwork and sinister futuristic dystopian view of the world that the artists created. While I was in hospital, my dad had found some of the comic books that I'd been reading, and he was shocked at the violence and the so-called demonic images in them. He was convinced that this was the cause of my mental illness and he wouldn't have them in the house. Just to recap, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in demons and Satan the devil being uh, actually present on the earth and they are a literal and physical threat to people's well-being. So he thought these comic books were possessed and put them in the greenhouse so that no harm could come to his family. It reminds me a little bit of the um, time when he was very concerned about having the ideology of a rock star's poster on my bedroom wall when I was younger. The Jehovah's Witnesses take a very literal view of some of the Bible's teachings. I've just done a little uh, Google search of some of these graphic novels that I used to read and yeah they were quite graphic um in their content but to believe that they were connected directly to satan is pure fantasy but like i say this is the world he and my mother and i grew up in it was presented to us as reality from birth in hospital i was given drugs to subdue my mood and probably some counseling although i'll be honest i can't remember any of that I was also given some brain scans to check if I was epileptic or had some sort of brain malfunction. Nothing showed up. There was no machine that could diagnose what was going on in my head. I had a doomsday mentality. Nothing was ever good enough. Things would always be better somewhere else or in another time. And a deep fear and misunderstanding of the world. The damage had been done and it was deep set in my core beliefs. Sedated and without any job, I existed in hospital. I actually do not know how long for. Weeks, certainly, but probably not months. Nothing was technically wrong with me, and I was eventually diagnosed with the term behavioural issues, which sounds like a naughty schoolboy. So I couldn't stay in hospital, obviously, indefinitely, um, and where I was going to go to was unknown. My dad would not have me back home for obvious reasons and I couldn't afford a house of my own with no job, although that idea was actually considered. They looked at putting me in a council house on some depressing sink estate to live a life existing on benefits. Um, obviously, needless to say, that idea scared the living daylights out of me. Eventually salvation came where a very kind brother and sister from the congregation, bear in mind that I had walked out probably a year or so before this, they stepped up and said that they would happily uh, let me come and live with them. 
I guess they understood the situation better than most people as their own son had left the organisation or the truth as they like to call it. The truth, the phrase, is used not in a descriptive way but more as an alternative name for the Jehovah's Witness organisation. By doing this, calling it the truth, how can you argue against it? I don't believe in the truth anymore, Dad, would be like saying... I don't believe the earth is round. It was a very manipulative phrase and clearly used not just by the Jehovah's Witnesses but other high control cults as a phrase to keep people from not thinking about what they're being taught. If it's the truth then that's all you need to know. So Adam and Pat decided to offer me a room until something more suitable could be found and Looking back, it was a very kind uh, and Christian gesture for them to do that. And I remember staying there for quite a few weeks, recovering from my breakdown and without the pressure of my dad and family life. They didn't make any suggestion about me rejoining the congregation. Um, I was still free, but it was quite a lonely existence. I didn't have a huge amount of social friends as the ones I'd had in the witnesses had Uh, long stopped associating with me and the friends that I had had at school were now long forgotten. I can't remember what I did every day probably because I was on quite strong medication but I do remember that I felt happy and safe. It was a little cottage in the country and it was the perfect place to heal. After a few months Adam said that my dad wanted to come and see me I hadn't had any contact with him over the weeks and months since the knife incident, but I knew that it was inevitably something we had to do at some point. Dad came across. He seemed like a changed man, humble and obviously deeply upset by this situation, and said that he would like me to come back and live at home with them. I think then he mentioned that the elders had told him that what he had done, trying to enforce his rule in order to stop me from being free to go about my life, was unchristian, and that, although I was no longer in the truth, I was still his son, and as such he still had a duty of care to me. I can remember being angered at this. Basically, I felt that this was not the true olive branch, but the words of someone who had been told he had to change his behaviour. I had, I made that clear. I said that if the elders hadn't told him to do so, he would have still retained his views on my worldly ways and choices. He tried his best to reassure me that this was not the case, but I knew it was. In fact, some years later, I was told that he was actually counselled and warned about his behaviour uh, as an elder, um, that he was not being uh, a Christian father and he was told that he had to take me home or face the judicial inquiry from the other elders, which would have possibly led to him having privileges removed or ultimately disfellowshipping. So, somewhat reluctantly, I returned home, and a kind of truce was established. I would respect the family's wishes and their right to practice their religion and beliefs, and they would afford me the same courtesy but it was a hostile truth, both parties doing something that deep down they didn't want to do, but were forced to by circumstances and pressures from outside external sources. I stayed there for less than a year, and then the first proper girlfriend I met on a night out, I married within a year. This was my chance to escape, be free and live my life as I want it. Unfortunately, I didn't realise it at the time, but I was a confused, mixed up, 
spat out kid, aged 20. And all I was doing was using marriage as an escape route, a lifeboat away from the wreckage of my family, the damage they had done to me and the obvious concern that I had given them. The marriage was doomed from the start. 1993, The Dark Side. Every therapist needs a therapist, they say. I can imagine that's true. Some of the things that they must hear must be disturbing. They will have people talking about their abuse, how they were molested, beaten, abandoned. It must be a heavy burden to carry. You can't just switch off at the end of the day and unforget the experiences you have had. I realise that maybe therapy is just having someone hear your story. That you sit down, take the time to talk and take the time to listen. And then it helps to release it. Talking is therapy. So I guess that's what we're doing here. I'm talking, you're listening. And hopefully, regardless of your situation, whether you're still an active witness or you've had similar experiences, maybe you can identify with some of the subjects and feelings and emotions that I experienced when I was growing up in the religion. Some of the subjects are difficult to talk about. They're personal, raw, and fear of judgment sometimes stops you from speaking about them and keeping them inside is is not good so that's where we're going now into the guilt and the shame and the aftermath of what happened during my early adult years so in 1993 i got married jane was my first girlfriend not my first sexual experience but first proper girlfriend if that makes sense by the way i'm not bragging there um, when I'm saying that I had um, partners before they were very fleeting pretty much disappointing encounters one night stands this sort of thing and I'd always had difficulty talking to girls when I was younger and when I finally left the JWs it was always a, a thing that I struggled with and more often than not when it came down to doing the business <laughs> Nerves would sometimes get the better of me. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail there. But it was ironic, as as a teenager, all I used to think about was sex. And um, controlling those urges was quite difficult. In fact, impossible. Sitting on the bus, sitting in a meeting, it would pop up at the most <laughs> inopportune moments. And with racing hormones and sexual desires as a teenager, you need to relieve that pressure and frustration. But remember, masturbation is a sin in the Jehovah's Witnesses. So anything that you did to relieve that build-up of tension, you felt very, very guilty because, well, Jehovah was watching you all the time and he knew what you had done. So let's just say I had quite a repressed and mixed-up view of sex and relations when I left the Witnesses and carried that through into my married life. It was not the best recipe for success. Two thousand and two, the dark side. By this time, I'd been married for nine years. Jane and I had two kids. I had a good job where Conrad, my boss, had become a mentor and a friend who filled the father figure void in my life. 
I wouldn't go to him for personal advice, but as my life was just ticking along okay and the only other thing I did was work, it was a good relationship. He left me to my own devices to run the business as my own and I thrived under the responsibility and the pressure of achieving sales targets, managing staff and contractors while selling directly and dealing with the public. I think the reason I was successful as a salesperson is that I was sincere and honest. I can't come up with the sales patter and bullshit that car salespeople and double glazing salesmen seem to do. I was friendly, knowledgeable, could haggle if I needed to and didn't tell lies. If it was going to take 10 weeks for delivery, I told you. If I didn't think the choice that you were making was the right one, I would tell you that also. I didn't just say things just to get the sale. This approach worked quite well. I was the top salesperson for 12 years. I made a lot of money as I was commission-based. I enjoyed full autonomy of running my own business. In my married life, though, things were not going quite as smoothly. Apart from our little family unit, I still felt quite isolated and alone in the world. Jane and I didn't have much in sex drives, which often left me feeling frustrated and rejected. I had repressed my sexual desires for the first 18 years of my life, and I felt that I had a lot of catching up to do. My first forays as a teenager into the world of relationships and sex had been very short-lived and not particularly successful. I felt that that was an important part of who I was and for our sex drives to be not matching up as I wanted them, it put a lot of pressure on our marriage. I actually remember the first time I realised that we probably weren't suited in this uh, department was before we actually got married. We were doing some decorating work in the house that we were going to be buying and I'd suggested a little afternoon delight and she, she was not really in the mood for it. And I can remember thinking back then that maybe marriage wasn't for me. Maybe I should live my life a little bit more. But it was too late. The wedding had been booked. Family and friends had been in, invited to come. And the alternative, which was living back home with my parents, was not even considered. I had jumped ship from the wreckage of my home life and was clinging on to the relationship with Jane as it was seen as my only salvation and source of happiness. When kids came along, it was a pleasant distraction and I'm still so thankful for all the love they have given me and I've been able to give them in return. As a father, I know what true, unconditional love is. I loved being able to bring them up the way I wanted, giving them birthdays and Christmas all the things that I felt that I missed out as a child myself. It was a happy time when the kids were younger. So, you may be asking, where did it all go wrong? I had a good job, two lovely cute little kids, and a marriage, although it wasn't perfect, <laughs> then whose relationship is perfect, what is perfect, and a nice comfortable house in the countryside. Like I say, outside of our own small family unit or our little bubble, I was still lonely. I didn't have many friends and as the manager, I wouldn't socialise with my staff. And my relationship obviously with my own family, my parents and my siblings, was more of tolerance than actual love, <laughs> pretty much as it is now. I was lonely, I was bored, I felt put on the back seat because the kids now took over a lot of our time. All our love was focused on them. There was nothing given or received from each other. It was a lifeless, joyless and dull marriage. I would drink heavily most evenings, a habit that progressed over the years to an unmanageable level. I started to become reclusive and isolated. I used to make music as a hobby. I've done that since I was a teenager. I love dance music and I used to use the internet 
which was still in its infancy back in 2002, to upload my music to MySpace. I dreamed of having my music signed and released for the world to hear. Something that I've actually achieved in later life, strangely enough, but back in the time it was just a dream. But it meant I was spending most of my time locked away either making music or trying to promote it. So I spent a lot of time online either talking to people and eventually started playing online games and I'm sure you can probably see where this is going. Started playing online pool, which should have been just a simple little diversion, a nice little game, but I got sort of addicted to it. And with the players, you could live chat with each other while you were playing. This is where I made my first mistake. I started preferring to chat to women, and soon those chats led to questions and then the exchanging of details, and I guess I was either too naive to see it, or too stupid, or maybe I was just in a bad place in my heart, but it resulted in me having an online relationship with a girl from the States. She was 21, I was 30 at the time. I used to get up early in the mornings to chat to her, 5am, or into and past midnight in the evenings, and we would chat for a few hours. We would chat when I was at work, and I would often stay behind, pretending to be doing work and office work just so that I could spend time chatting online. Jane used to question why I was spending so much time on the computer, and I would say I was doing music stuff. She didn't seem to question or care as I became more and more isolated, withdrawn and tired from all the lack of sleep. We didn't really exist as a couple at all. I went to work. She stayed at home looking after the kids, who were then aged four and two. Not only did I not have any interaction with Jane, as we didn't speak a great deal, but also I was isolating myself from my kids. The online chats started getting more intense, and eventually telephone numbers were exchanged, and I used to have a separate phone card so I could ring the states, and plans were made that eventually we should try and get together to see how we got on in real life. felt completely disconnected from Jane, but looking back now... I've got to take a lot of the blame of this myself. I was isolating myself, so why would she feel that she wanted to spend time with someone who was spending so much time away from her and the family? But this online relationship with the girl in the States was filling this this void which I'd always felt I still had in my life for companionship and friendship. I'm not trying to make excuses for my behaviour now. It was just the way that I felt at the time. Jane wasn't showing me any attention. The reason for this is because she had two young kids and I obviously wasn't showing her any attention in return. We never went out anywhere. Our parents never offered to babysit and I was happy either drinking heavily into the evenings or sitting on the computer. It's not an excuse for my behaviour. I behaved immaturely, dishonestly and unlovingly. Not only to Jane, but to my kids also. If I had spent as much time as I had on my own marriage and relationship as I was with this online relationship, things might have worked out. But sadly, that's not what happened. Eventually, it was decided that I would take a small holiday away. I lied and said that I was feeling stressed at work. And plans were made for the girl from the States to fly across and we would meet up and spend the weekend together and see how we got on actually in real life. I don't think um, we need to go into too many details about what happened at that weekend. What I will say is 
all the time I felt extremely guilty and yeah I still ignored my feelings and went on with the weekend but I can remember when the weekend finished and I was driving home back to my own family the guilt and remorse was starting to get the better of me I was so confused as to what I wanted to do I was so overwhelmed with remorse and that sickly feeling when you know that you've done something terrible. I can remember looking at an oncoming lorry on the other side of the road and considering driving my car straight into it just so I didn't have to face the consequences for the decision that I just made and what I'd just done. I think looking back at that weekend I successfully managed to switch off my emotional part of my brain, the part that should have woke me up and told me that what I was doing was was wrong but that's something that I was highly skilled at doing I've developed a good technique for just going through with things and ignoring my inner voice my inner warning system of course I could have returned and told Jane that I'd had a nice relaxing breakaway by myself and had come back feeling better and not so stressed and angry as I had been when I wanted to go away. But I knew what I had to do. I had to tell her the real reason I had gone away for that weekend. And knowing that it would break her trust in our relationship and the thin thread that still held our marriage together, I wasn't going to be begging for forgiveness or a second chance. The deed was done. I apologised to her and told her what had happened, that I would support her and the children, but I was going to move out. And that's what I did. I got a flat. I continued my job. I'm not sure looking back how I managed to mentally cope with all these different stresses and uh, changes in my life. And the damage I caused my wife is uh, obviously unforgivable. Eventually the girl from the States decided that she was going to move across to the UK and wow, I mean we lived together for maybe a month, six weeks But hey, guess what? A relationship that starts online and is pretty much based on a sexual attraction didn't work out and she went back home. Jane was feeling lonely and very depressed herself and one day she came in to see me at work and told me that even though what had happened she would be prepared for me to come back home as the kids were missing me and she wanted me to be there. I'm not sure if that was a brave thing of her to do or a stupid thing. But that's what I did. I moved back and we tried to move on as best we could with our marriage. Again, I clung on to the lifeboat of an unhappy marriage rather than face up to living by myself for a little bit. So that brings me to the end of chapter three. Thanks for listening to the end. Again, that wasn't a particularly nice thing to go through personally. Um, I'm not going back looking at those memories with um, any happiness obviously but like I say I'm sharing my story for others who may find that they can see some similarities or patterns of behavior um, which matched what I went through. Chapter 4 will be the last chapter of this series Um a spoiler alert i'm afraid it goes quite darker from here onwards however if you would like to hear more don't forget to subscribe if you would like to leave a review or rate the podcast wherever you've listened to it please do so 
also after chapter four is finished i've been speaking to a number of people who have heard this first part of the podcast and the stories and the feedback that i'm getting is in general fairly positive and if you would like to share your story through uh, an interview process with me when chapter four is finished please drop me uh, an email either through either through instagram or twitter i'm on both of those under theo critic and we could have a chat about your own experiences and the effects it had on you not only through your life growing up in the witnesses but long afterwards hope you can join me for chapter four like i say it's not going to be an easy one it might be a couple of weeks until i can get ready to tell the rest of this story and it does go downhill from there but hey that's life and i did come through it and i'm now on the other side of all of the things that happened so there was a positive outcome so hope you can join us next time See you then. Bye-bye.